welcome to the DOS Champions podcast. It is Tuesday, the 11th of January, the year is 2022, and tonight we have a, uh, a special guest with us. We have uh, Peter Wilt on. Peter, how are you doing today? Really well. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, we're really uh, excited to learn more about you know everything that you've you've done uh, regarding soccer and maybe some stuff outside of soccer as well. Uh, you know, NISA um, or is it NISA? I always go back and forth on the proper proper way I to talk with, about the league. I go with NISA. You know, some people say okay. NISA, and, and that bugs me. NISA, I guess, is okay, but NISA is uh, the accepted form. Okay, so it's. There it is. It's definitive for everybody. It is Nisa. Uh, Alex, how are you doing? I'm great, man. Excited to be here. Uh, I've been wanting to do this podcast for such a long time. I love what Nisa is about. And um, yeah, I think we've been trying to like plan this for about a month and a half now. So super excited to be here. Yeah, a- absolutely. And I'm just going to jump into this by uh, first talking about who Peter Welt is, uh, Peter, correct me or, um, you know, fill in the blanks as I, I go through the, the little breakdown that we have here. Um, you are a Midwestern native. Uh, you grew up in McHenry, Illinois, uh, worked with the uh, Milwaukee Brewers to begin with, a little bit with the Admirals. And I hear your first like introduction into uh the soccer world, at least maybe the professional soccer world, was with the Milwaukee Wave. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Brewers are on my resume, but really I was just an usher and ticket taker at County Stadium uh, when I was in college. It was a way to get in to see baseball games for free. You know, I was a sports junkie as a kid growing up, and being able to get paid to watch baseball games was a dream. My first real job in sports out of college was that hockey job with the Admirals. And that's kind of where I learned sports management on the ground. It was a small organization. We had seven employees, and I did a little bit of everything. Um, Sold tickets and sponsorship, promotions, game operations, which I was really bad at, by the way. To this day, I I stress on game day. So I don't even take a walkie-talkie on game day. Uh, but it gave me the the background and the knowledge to do what I do today. I mean, there was no sports management programs back then. I mean, we're talking the mid-80s. So I was very fortunate. And that led to that first job with the Milwaukee Wave indoor soccer team. And Milwaukee Wave, for those who don't know, are still in existence. And it's the oldest continuously run pro soccer team in America. So, uh Alex and I both would have grown up with the Milwaukee Wave being kind of a mainstay. Uh, I went to quite a few games throughout my youth. And then, um, as was very common for people in our area, we went to you know their, uh, their summer camps where you, know, you get to get coached by the players. It was a really exciting thing for um, you know, us and our, our friend group, actually. A lot of the, the close friends we have still will show the picture from like you know, the 1996 or four camp so it's uh yeah definitely half an inter- us, 
We have those pictures. Many of us have those pictures from our youth hanging in our refrigerators of like Alex looking like a gremlin with the biggest smile on his face. And, you know, I remember drinking, drinking all sport at lunch. And that was before, you know, sugar could really do to your system what it does today. But those were great memories. And that's like in large part what uh, what helped me really enjoy the game as a kid. I I think Michael King was in like every single one of those pictures. I got a text message from Michael King today, coincidentally enough. And you guys are making me old telling these stories, but I was with the wave when those camps started in uh, the mid eighties. And they were at the time led by Louis Bennett, Louis Bennett, who's now the head coach, longtime head coach at Marquette university men's soccer program. And to make me feel even older, Louis's son, Louis Bennett too, is uh, a player for me at Chicago House. And, and not just a player, he's a veteran. So, yeah, I, I'm no two ways about it, guys. I'm old. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, Alex, you and I are a lot older than we were uh, when we're idolizing Milwaukee Wave players. Uh, but so from the, from the Wave then, Peter, you moved on into um, – being the original GM of the Chicago Fire. And then from my understanding, you were the president of the Chicago Fire uh, for a time too. And that was during a fairly, well, the beginning of the Chicago Fire, uh, you know, it was an exciting time and MLS starting in general. And then uh, it was a fairly, fairly successful time for the Fire also. I, I The one MLS Cup uh, you had when you were there, four uh, US Open Cups, and then a Supporter Shield. Um, yeah, what did that experience kind of help shape, you know, your view of soccer? And I guess, uh, how did that go in general? Well, I, I've been very fortunate throughout my career to surround myself with some really good people. And um, in between the wave and the fire was the Minnesota Thunder. We started them as a professional soccer team in 1994 when the World Cup came to the shores of the United States and soccer really started to grow in this country. MLS started a couple of years later and they recruited me because of the success uh, my teams had had uh, in Minnesota and elsewhere uh, to launch what was not even the fire at the time. It was Chicago MLS. And this would have been the summer of 1997. And uh, nine months later, we had named the team and we had assembled uh, a coaching staff led by Bob Bradley and a roster, you know, led by some European greats, uh, Lubos Kubik, uh, Peter Novak, uh, Roman Kasetsky, some Polish stars, and brought Frank Klopas, a Chicago star, back to Chicago. Uh, some young up-and-coming players like Chris Armas, who went on to be the U.S. men's national team coach, Jesse Marsh, C.J. Brown, Ante Razov, Zach Thornton, really some great MLS players as an expansion team. And we actually won the MLS double, the U.S. Open Cup and MLS Cup in our first year. And it's never been done before or since. So we're very proud of that. And it it taught me the importance of surrounding yourself with good people, giving them the tools to succeed, and pointing them in the right direction. Um, it was a special time uh, for soccer in Chicago, not just that first year, but the whole eight years I was there was incredible. Uh, the winning on the field, of course, was important 
the, all the trophies you mentioned, the Supporters' Shield in 2003, the only time the Fires ever won the Supporters' Shield. But more importantly, I think what we meant to the community. At the time, the fire was very relevant in Chicago. And we learned the importance of community engagement, uh, getting the players out. I mean, this was the days before social media. So you needed that in-person uh, glad handing, autograph signing, uh, player clinics, um, humility as well was important to uh, recognize that we didn't invent soccer in Chicago, that we came on the shoulders of giants. I mean, I was a fan of the Chicago Sting growing up and getting to become close friends with their owner, Lee Stern, has been one of the real life validating moments for me and getting to know their great stars like Carl Heinz Granitza and Pato Marhetic and Brett Hall, um, as well as all the amateur players from the decades before in Chicago that laid the foundation for professional soccer uh, today. So that experience was terrific. And, you know, as long as I go and I've started more pro soccer teams than anybody in the world, I think nine of them, but I think what I'll always be remembered for is uh, that group with the Chicago fire. Yeah, uh, some of the few MLS games I've actually been to was uh, at that time, and I I was actually at the the home opener, the first one for the Chicago Fire. So uh, you know, thirty six thousand and four hundred forty three others uh, went to that game. It was against Tampa Bay Mutiny, uh, Carlos Valderrama. Uh, mm-hmm. It was amazing. We had a walk up of twelve thousand for that game. Was, I think there were some fans that unfortunately, hopefully not you, that didn't even get into the stadium, Soldier Field, until halftime. Uh, but it was a special time in Chicago soccer. Yeah, I remember it being it being uh, crowded at certain times and it being difficult to get in. Um, but I think we were in there for the entire game. Uh, not great seats, but, you know, it was it was awesome being there. Uh, yeah, so you know, thank you for your part and, and at least that experience for myself. Uh like you were saying, you started or had in hand in, uh, what was it? Nine total clubs. Um, I'm just going to list them off here. If, if you're all right with that, we got the Chicago fire, Minnesota United that we already talked about. Um, the Chicago red stars, um, Chicago power, the Milwaukee wave you were a part of, uh, Indy 11. And then, Forward Madison, uh, Green Bay Voyagers, and Chicago House. And that doesn't even really get into the whole um, work you've done with NISA, which is, you know, step above just running a team. And I say just running a team or starting a team, but that, you know, an entire league and everything. Uh, I've been fortunate to be in a career in an industry that has been growing during my lifetime. You know, when I got out of college, I sent my resume to... 23 of the 24 Major League Baseball teams. I did not send it to the Montreal Expos because I did not speak French. Uh, But fortunately, I was rejected by every one of them. Because if I would have gotten a job in baseball, uh, I probably would not have gone very far in my career. My guess is I would have been a ticket salesman and I would have ended up either having a career as a ticket salesman or more likely burned and churned and out of the industry rather quickly. But as it ended up, 
I was steered into soccer, which was at perhaps a low ebb. It was the dark ages of the sport in America. There was no Division I league. It was after the NASL folded, before MLS started, before the World Cups came to the United States. I say Cups plural because the Women's World Cup in 1999 was as important or more so on the impact of the sport in this country as 94. And so I was at the right place at the right time. There weren't many people that had experience in sports management in the soccer industry. And we're fortunate to have success with the teams I was involved with, the Milwaukee Wave. We took the team from the Milwaukee Auditorium, Mecca Auditorium, uh, capacity 3,400 seats, to the Mecca Arena, 9,000 seats, then the year after to the Bradley Center. And we sold out the Bradley Center, 17,900 capacity. And we averaged over 10,000 fans a game my last year there. So I had some success with those teams as soccer started to get a foothold in this country. And I got a, a reputation for starting soccer teams and having some success. And it's enabled me uh, to piece together a nice little career. Yeah, and uh, one thing I just want to touch on briefly here, and we'll definitely want to dive into it more uh, later, but your work with um, Milwaukee professional soccer and trying to bring in, unfortunately, unsuccessfully, an MLS team to Milwaukee. So many of the other experiences that you've had in the game have been in Milwaukee. So, um, yeah, I, I guess just a, a brief something on that from you. And then uh, I kind of want to get into after that, uh, some of the nitty gritty with with NISA and where all that's headed. Yeah, after I left the Chicago Fire, I was approached by Marty Greenberg, who was trying to get an MLS team for Milwaukee. So this would have been 2006. And I joined his efforts, and we tried very hard for, I guess it was three years, to get an MLS team in Milwaukee. And we had the pieces of the puzzle together. Uh, we had an ownership group. We had a lead investor uh, at one point when we had the other pieces, the real estate for the stadium, um, the plans for the stadium, option on land. Uh, we even had, this is, you guys will find this fascinating. We had an, an agreement with the State Youth Soccer Association to be part owners of the team. And as part of the agreement, they were committing to the equivalent of 8,000 full season tickets. They were going to build into their membership with registration tickets for every youth player in the state of Wisconsin. And it would have been an amazing success. Um, Milwaukee and Wisconsin is well positioned to support professional soccer. And it's the largest city in the country that has never had Division I professional men's soccer. Uh, and at this time, it doesn't have uh, professional outdoor soccer at any level. I think that's going to change soon. I think there'll be at least one, if not two professional outdoor teams in this market uh, uh, before long. Uh, but ultimately, it wasn't successful because the politics behind it wasn't. We weren't able to get the support 
of the governmental entities that we needed to support it. So from there, I went back to Chicago and launched the professional women's team in Chicago, the Chicago Red Stars, which is the oldest continuously run um, professional women's team in the United States. Well, it's uh, it's actually great to hear that, you know, you keep trying to identify places that soccer could could take root a little bit and uh, and make things happen. And I, I completely agree with you on the on the Milwaukee take. I um, I think it's it's more than capable of supporting a professional team uh, and actually could have um, quite an interesting fan base if given the opportunity. Uh, but then you bounce along to, uh, you know, another place that's screaming for something and then have a great, great success with the, the red stars. Uh, now I guess let's get into, let's get into Nisa a little bit. Um, you know, what prompted a transition from, I guess, operating on a team to team basis and into, uh, you know, more of a, an organization as a whole. And I, I know since then you've moved back in our, our, Chicago House AC right now, I believe, but that that's under underneath NISA. So I guess in general, um, why NISA, Peter? Sure. So at the time I was working with Indy 11, we were part of the North American Soccer League, which was an independent league that was operating ostensibly under the open system. Uh, they wanted to, the NASL is a league, wanted to operate in a way that the rest of the world does in soccer. Uh, An open system where there's promotion and relegation, no territorial uh, exclusivity and that sort of thing. And um, I had met with the commissioner of the NASL and the commissioner of a fourth division amateur league, the NPSL. And we were all in agreement that there needed to be a league in between the two to establish promotion and relegation. So I was tasked with my late business partner, Jack Cummins, to start a new third division league. And that league was going to link up the second division NASL and fourth division NPSL. But along the way, uh, the NASL uh, folded and the NPSL decided they wanted to just stay amateur. So Jack and I went about starting NISA to fill the whole gap. And we started it as a third division league with the idea that it will start as a foundational level and build from that with a second division and ultimately a first division and create a pyramid like they do in the rest of the world that has an open system, has teams that rise to the top based on meritocracy. And that was started in 2017. Unfortunately, uh, Jack passed away in 2018 uh, before we could get the necessary eight teams together to launch. And I was recruited to help Forward Madison start in 2019. Uh, And then We got Forward Madison off the ground. And in 2020, NISA had gotten going under different leadership. And they recruited me to come back to NISA, but on the team level in Chicago to establish a team there. 
that's a that's a story that's a story and a half for how nisa got started and it's nice to see after the idea was formed that you guys were able to come back together or at least you know you were able to come back and complete the vision to some degree um but it sounds like nisa is still in the works and for anybody who's interested in a meritocracy behind their league structure which i think many u.s fans are um this sounds like an interesting league to be engaged with I wanted to ask, um, there's a lot of facets that I think consumers consider as they select a league of record, whether it's the EPL or MLS or whatever league it is. Um, and I think one of them, especially at the youth level, um, is how well does the league appeal to, well, the more or less children or youth players in the community? And so is there anything about NISA that you think is particularly appealing to either youth players or for parents? So NISA is footed in independence and it encourages its teams to operate in a way that makes sense in their own local market. And especially in ways that will create emotional connections in their markets, uh, they encourage fan ownership, which is really an important element that is common in the rest of the world where the fans actually own part of the team. Uh, there are several teams in NISA that have already implemented that, including the teams in Rochester, New York, and Chattanooga. And Chicago is going to go in that direction. Uh, and that allows whole families to be involved in the team itself. So they're not just fans of the team, but they can be owners of the team. And then uh, NISA teams, almost by definition, are reflections of the communities they serve. Um, because of the open system, uh, it's on a path to have multiple teams in various communities or various cities or markets. And those teams are going to reflect micro communities within those cities. Uh, most, if not all, the NISA teams either have their own youth soccer academies or are in the development stages for ha beginning their youth soccer uh, organizations. In Chicago, we're looking at doing that. If we can do it in a way where it will be uh, exclusive to the city and to children that are in underserved communities, we don't necessarily, we don't want to go into competition with existing youth soccer clubs, especially in the suburbs that have developed outstanding programs and there's really no need for another group to come in and compete with them. But if we can go into underserved parts of Chicago and provide educational resources, coaching and opportunities for children, that will fill a gap in, in the soccer world. And those are the types of things that NISA encourages and intends to help make the sport grow, not just on a no local level, but on a national level. We've seen so many clubs in Europe be successful with that type of model. And a lot of it, and especially one of the things that you touched in on, is um, allowing, to uh, allowing the community to have some ownership of their club. And that's actually how I came across the brand at one point. I saw there's an ad that was running on LinkedIn and it's like, hey, you want to you want an investment opportunity, you can invest in a soccer club. 
And I was like, if this thing's in Chicago, like I absolutely want to invest in it. Not, you know, finances aside and diversifying your investments, that's one way of looking at it, but also just investing in something that you actually care about. And we've seen a ton of clubs over in Europe be successful by just having their fans engage in a, in a more dynamic manner. And it's so strange walking up and down the block in Chicago and everybody's kids play soccer, but they're all affiliated with different programs. And there isn't one, one type of brand loyalty. I always thought that was kind of surprising. Yeah. And that's, this is going to be the way to get soccer supported in the United States on a mass basis, because we're not necessarily going to be able to offer the best soccer, but what we can offer is local soccer. So we're going to provide a team that children and their parents and young people can identify with, that can connect with. Uh, I mean, that's what we're doing with Chicago House. It's what we did with Indy 11, what we did with Forward Madison. You know, none of these are the best or even the cheapest soccer alternatives for, for people. People can turn on their laptop or their televisions and get 24-hour soccer access and watch better soccer, you know, Liverpool or Club America or PSG. We can't offer that. What we can offer is local. We can offer a team that the community can take pride in and relate to. And in Indy, uh, Indianapolis, I use as an example, I mean, that was a team where in our first year, we sold out every game. It's never happened in American pro soccer before. 11,000 seat stadium too. And it wasn't all soccer fans, but a lot of them were people that loved Indianapolis. They have people in Indy often have kind of a chip on their shoulder because people on the outside don't realize what a great city it is, uh, but they do. It really is a great city. And so the soccer team we built, we built with the community in mind and we connected whether it was through social organizations, cultural organizations, government, businesses, sporting organizations. And we created these partnerships so that the whole area felt this was their team. The colors were from the city flag. The um, uh, elements in the uniform were representative of the city itself. And uh, it made people feel connected because it's their team. And that's what soccer is. That's what sports is. It's tribal, right? You know, in the rest of the world, you know, if you go to England and you see the passion of the fans, you know, it can be a lower division team. So it's not Manchester United quality of soccer, but it's their team. It might be their little village and their small town of 4,000 is supporting their local team. And it's the athletes are representative of the community at large. And that's what we're trying to achieve, not just with Chicago House, but through NISA. I really think, you know, for the consumers, there's some serious merit to consider behind um, getting with local soccer versus engaging in the best soccer uh, that's available. And there's something uh, very rewarding about supporting local efforts, supporting local talent, um, helping develop local talent and knowing that they came from your community. I guess it's like a more of a feeling of legacy 
than it is uh, short-term enjoyment or short-term pleasure. But I think that's like a, a very big, a very big factor in whether or not the consumer base wants to support Nisa is, you know, do you find yourself to be the type of person that cares about legacy that cares about local development? And if so, Nisa might be the league of record to really, to get behind. Yeah. It's the way it is in the rest of the world. Uh, frankly, I mean, only in America uh, do you have a closed system for soccer where, you know, once you're in the first division, you're there forever. Um, and, you know, NISA represents that alternative. We consider ourselves a disruptor in the marketplace. I don't think a lot of the people in the closed system of soccer um, necessarily embrace what we're, we're doing. Um, but that's okay. And the league is growing. And during a pandemic, this league started with eight teams in uh, 2019 and in its first season of play. And during the pandemic, added a ninth team in 2020. Chicago came along as the 10th team in 2021. There's four new teams joining for this upcoming year in 2022. Uh, and there's half a dozen more teams expected on the horizon for 2023. So it's growing quickly. Uh, promotion relegation will come in as soon as there's enough team to have the two levels. I think that's probably only two or three years away. So it's exciting what's going on. Um, and it's great to have a team in Chicago. And by the way, because of NISA's uh, resistance to territorial exclusivity, Chicago could and should have multiple teams in the future. I mean, obviously people look at London and, you know, there's a dozen pro soccer teams in London at different levels. Half of them are in the premiership alone. Manchester, England has half a dozen. Glasgow, Scotland has half a dozen. Buenos Aires has 18 pro soccer teams. I don't think Chicago could or should try to support 18 teams right now, but it can su certainly support more than one men's outdoor pro soccer team. Uh, they each need to be representative of a different fan base. You know, um, Chicago House isn't going to be all things for all people. You know, our mission is is blatantly um, inclusive, which almost by definition means there's going to be people that don't want us. And by inclusive, I mean uh, we are proactively uh, for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, we are proponents of social justice, which, you know, on the surface doesn't sound very controversial. You know, who wouldn't be in favor of social justice? Well, apparently a lot of people. <laughs> but uh, we have taken it upon ourselves to use our resources. And we're lower division soccer right now, so no uh, illusions. But we use our the resources we do have, whether it's financial or, more importantly, human resources, our players, our coaches, our staff, uh, to help make Chicago a better place. Um, you know, before Christmas, we had our players, our coaching staff, and myself at a, a food pantry in a little village working all day, uh, putting together food packets and passing them out. And that's just living uh, the talk, living the mission statement. And that's what we want to be about. We want to be representative of the community and make the community we're serving a better place.
yeah, in the short time working with you, I've definitely felt that, that you're walking the walk when it comes to that. I, you know, I think it was a few months ago when we first interacted and I had talked to you about wanting to do a, a futsal clinic at the Irving Park Lutheran Church. And you were like, yeah, let's get some let's get some pennies out there. Let's get some branded balls and maybe we'll get one of the, the professionals from the team to make an appearance there. And, and being able to engage with the team in that fashion and expose the youth to soccer um, and have like, you know, coaches that actually know what they're talking about or are active professional players. That's kind of, it kind of reminds me of the memories that were built for Ryan and I back when we were uh, going to the Milwaukee wave camps and, you know, you, you never really know what kind of impact that will have on an individual. Um, so one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, uh, do you foresee in the future NISA being the type of league that could, that could develop local talent or, you know, identify local talent and actually professionally sign them? Like, is it plausible to think that an emerging 17, 18 year old in Chicago would be able to play for Chicago house? Yeah, absolutely. And we've already done it. Um, uh, this year, past season, uh, Leo Acosta, a 19 year old kid from, um, uh, uh, from here locally, uh, was signed and, uh, Damon Almazan, another, uh, young player, uh, 19 years old from Joliet, um, made our roster and, and, and played, uh, in the future, I can see us having a city based academy or partnership with, uh, a local city based club that can help develop the players where our coaches and players are involved in coaching the, the children and the youth of the future. And Chicago House intends to have a U23 team that would play in the Midwest Premier League to help with that development. So, again, that's a structure that's uh, common in the rest of the world. Um, in this country, you finally have uh, MLS doing it and uh, USL is doing it as well. So it's starting to become normalized. And uh, for NISA, it's part of the DNA of this league. Um, one of the last questions I wanted to ask before we just get into general soccer banter is um, I, I wanted to talk about NISA for investors and none of these leagues are, they're not easy to build. I mean, you, you don't just go in with an idea and it's like, let's get a few people engaged. And, and then all of a sudden we have a league there's dollars and cents that go into it. But um for anybody that's thinking about whether it's uh, communities or parents thinking about investing or in, in a local league or just investors in general that are thinking about starting a team, what is, a, what is appealing about NISA? Why is NISA different than some of the other investments they can make in the sporting world? Well, it's a startup. And like a lot of startups, it's higher than average risk uh, because these things can always go south. Uh, but it's much higher than average reward. I think you know the the valuation on our team, for example, is two and a half million dollars, uh, which is relatively low for a professional sports team. is relatively low even for a professional soccer team. Um, Division two teams in this country are valued between ten and twenty million dollars, and we think that within two or three years. Chicago House will be competing at the second division level. And in a major market like Chicago, that means the valuation of the team 
will likely be in that range of, of 10 to $20 million, more likely on the higher side. So just by being sustainable, by existing, the valuation will go high. And if down the road, the vision of the pyramid of NISA comes to fruition and there is a first division on top of that pyramid, then the valuation goes through the roof. MLS teams now are being valued by Forbes for half a billion dollars with a B. And these are teams that just, you know, 10 years ago were valued at 10% of that. Uh, So if NISA gets their first division, and I believe it will before the end of the decade, especially with the Men's World Cup coming back to the United States in 2026, shining a spotlight on the sport, I think the filling out of the pyramid for NISA is a matter of uh, when, not if. Then the valuation goes into nine figures. And if, you know, an original valuation of 2.5 million goes up to in excess of 100 million, you know, the easy math on that is that uh, whatever was invested in 2022 is going to be worth 40 times that amount by 2030. That's a great take, Peter. I appreciate that. We've had we've had investors come on the pod before and talk about why they choose to invest in specific sports teams. And one of the things that they've always said is that sports seem to be recession proof. So even in difficult times or economic downturns, people still want to watch sports and they and they'll basically give anything they can possibly give to expose their children to sports, which is really interesting. But um That's as I true. look at these side. Yeah. I was going to say, all, the other part of that is live content for media. Uh, it's, it's king for media, you know, in this day and age of digital and different uh, ways to consume uh, uh, television, uh, sports is king, live content is king, and a, a startup will only increase in value. You see the valuation of professional sports teams over the years. And there's a trajectory north, that graph goes north because uh, regardless of operational uh, bottom line, there's a limited supply and the demand is always going up. So these sports teams go up in value and uh, professional soccer now is on the beneficiary of that. That's that's definitely an interesting principle. And I, I think I've noticed that trend in, in several other sports teams as well. Um, what's all, you know, I just want to note, like one of the, there's a few other things that I really like about NISA from an investment perspective. One of them is that the cost of entry is pretty reasonable. There are certain teams that you, if you wanted to buy today, like MLS expansion teams, you would need half a billion with a B dollars to invest in the cost of entry for an investor or for a club owner in NISA. It's not nearly as high. But if you couple that with the market still needing to normalize to some degree, like there aren't this, the U.S. market doesn't dominantly engage in MLS and some prefer USL to MLS. Most prefer the EPL to either of those two leagues and Liga MX is watched more than MLS. So there's this almost balancing or normalization that needs to happen in the country and someone needs to be you know, king of the domestic league. And and I don't think that we've seen that quite yet. So for the cost of entry and knowing that the market is going to adjust and normalize, I think it's a really appealing investment. 
And um, finally, with the pro-rel element to NISA, it applies the same principles that many investors would otherwise use in private enterprise. I've always found it kind of strange that somebody who's made their fortune in private enterprise, which is cutthroat and competitive, would want to purchase a team that doesn't apply the same principles of competitiveness. And without competitiveness, there's a general lack of innovation. And perhaps if the leagues were a little bit more competitive with their teams and were fighting off relegation, trying to be a better team, the product would be better. So I've I've always thought that NISA was an appealing investment. I'm not just into it because of you know the work that you guys are doing and how grassroots it is, which I, I really do appreciate. But I I think it's got the opportunity to be the, the dominant league in the United States. Well, it, it makes every game matter. Uh, you know, and, and I, I try to follow MLS the best I can, but I know that if I miss a few games in the middle of the season, it's not the end of the world. Uh, or even at the end of the season, unfortunately, because if you're at the bottom half of the table, there's not much to compete for. Uh, they now allow it seems like almost every team into the playoffs. So if you're competing for a playoff spot, that's something. But you also know that if your team barely makes it into the playoffs, it's extremely unlikely they're going to win the championship. Whereas in leagues around the world, in NISA, when your team is in the bottom half of the of the league, those games are actually more meaningful because you're competing to stay up and avoid relegation. Um, so, you know, as we're kind of, um, pivoting out of NISA, I I wanted to just talk about some of your general perceptions of the league and the state of affairs in in the U S. Um, yeah, I wanted to start with the general question of like, what do you think needs adjustment in the domestic scene? I mean, is NISA basically the illustration of what you feel needs to be adjusted or are there more macro things that if you could wave a magic wand and change it today, you would do that are somewhat mutually exclusive from NISA? Well, I think they're interrelated, but I think the macro element that needs to be adjusted is the U.S. Soccer Federation's pro league standards. Those pro league standards that have been arbitrarily applied to determine who gets to own a soccer team in America are counterproductive to the growth of the sport. Only in the United States, because of the United States Soccer Federation, are there limits on who can own a soccer team. If you had the ownership of Barcelona saying, we want to start a soccer team in America using our same structure, U.S. soccer would say, no, no, it's not for us. The same with virtually every team in the Bundesliga. The same with a lot of teams in Mexico. In Mexico, you have universities, nonprofit organizations that own professional soccer teams. That's not allowed in the United States. Fan ownership. You are not allowed to have fans controlling interest. They have to have a single individual with a minimum high net worth in order to receive U.S. soccer's blessing. And that's just wrong. It doesn't uh, add to the growth of the sport. It stifles it. So that's the macro thing. And NISA has been rallying against that. Uh, One of our uh, team owners, the New York Cosmos, um, they're on hiatus right now, but their owner is suing U.S. Soccer Federation for this exact issue. And 
if they can win that and get that change so that the pro league standards are no longer narrowly defined, that broadens the opportunity for more types of ownership groups in the United States, and it will attract more investment in the sport. To me, it's a no-brainer that that should happen. Yeah, I have to agree with you there, Peter. The uh, pro league standards are they're they're fairly shameful, um, and I think anybody that that takes a look at it for a little bit and then looks at who does the marketing for USSF probably can figure out why they are the way they are. Uh, but but yeah, that I'm you know it's it's just an unfortunate state. I I hope the election here coming up for the USSF is a difference maker. I'm not going to hold my breath over that one though. We know how these things have gone in the past. It doesn't look uh, look like it's it, it's leading in a, a totally you know positive direction this time around, considering their you know lack of transparency, etc. But um, but yeah, what uh, I guess just to kind of like take a non sequitur here almost and. What do you think, um, Al and I will ask this question to almost anybody that comes on. We ask ourselves it quite often, but what do you think an ideal fan looks like? And this is a, this isn't much of a, like, we're not trying to prescribe necessarily, but it's a, uh, kind of a, a philosophical question in some ways, you know, what, uh, what would a fan that, you know, wants the best for us soccer, um, be looking to do, or, um, wh- what is that to you? I think it's a fan who cares about his his constituency, so his community. If you're talking about a, a domestic team fan, club fan, it's someone that cares about his community or her community and sees it reflected in his or her soccer local soccer team. I think that's the ideal fan. Um, I, I think if someone is only a fan of and I always use Liverpool, but whatever. If 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 they live in Kansas City and they're fans of Liverpool, but not sporting Kansas City, that's not an ideal fan. I think an ideal fan. It doesn't mean they can't support Liverpool, but they should be supporting their local soccer team. But it's also incumbent upon the teams to give them reason to care about themselves. Them. So this isn't the onus on the fan. It's a two-way street. But ideally, yes, the fan cares about the team in their locale. I really like what you did there. You may have changed the nature of our question moving forward. Um, the the two-way street thing, uh, I think, is is very, very important for what we're driving at when we, when we ask this type of question. And, uh, it's funny you bring up Liverpool. I, I, you know, if I have to pick my team in EPL, it's Liverpool, uh, been that way since, I don't know, around 2005 ish. Um, you know, that, that final, uh, in the champions league did things to me. And then even the, the lead up to it though, there was a, a game against Juventus and the crowd and everything was, was phenomenal. But, um, you know, to, to give myself, uh, you know, to take, take myself as the example of the Liverpool fan there, uh, you know, I, I go to my fair share of um, forward Madison games. And, uh, you know, I try to get back to the club I played for as a kid and, and see some Bavarian uh, majors games as well. So 
I uh, I like to think I'm a decent enough fan, but uh, I don't know. I feel like you might have called me out there a bit, Peter. Um, <laughs> moving into uh, actually, you know, that I brought up the Bavarians. I kind of wanted to talk more about the Milwaukee market because um, going up there uh, for practice as a kid, I remember like feeling that there was there was energy um, in the city in terms of soccer. There were so many teams that we would go play against that were, um, you know, old world soccer communities that seem to have a lot of passion for the sport, the sport. And it's very surprising to me that that energy hasn't been leveraged into, you know, monetary gain with the professional team, for example, at, at the most you know basic or base, uh, need there. Uh, I guess, can you speak more about your, um, your experience with with Milwaukee area sports and soccer and uh, yeah, why you think it might be a good spot to have a, a pro team eventually. Yeah, you're right. The ethnic heritage of Milwaukee makes it a very good soccer market. It's uh, an early adopter of the sport, much like St. Louis. Uh, but some people think that Milwaukee is too much of a baseball market uh, to fall in love with soccer on the professional level. Especially, you know, the summertime is relatively short in Milwaukee, and there's a lot of people that will use that time to uh, for other activities, whether it's going up to their cabin up north, going to the ethnic festivals or Summerfest or Brewers games. But um, St. Louis and I would say another city, Cincinnati, I think have a lot of similarities to Milwaukee in that regard. And in Cincinnati, we've seen it's a soccer market. Even though they love the Cincinnati Reds, they found room in their heart for a really bad professional soccer team in FC Cincinnati. And I think we're going to find out that St. Louis is the same way. They love the Cardinals, but they will embrace their MLS team. And I think, and I found this in in Madison, uh, where they really support the Madison Mallards minor league baseball team, which has shared ownership with Forward Madison, that it's not the same audience. The crossover is less than 10% is what we found. And I think we'll find that in Milwaukee as well, that there's a large number of soccer fans in the Milwaukee area that aren't necessarily big baseball fans. You know, I'm a big baseball fan, but, uh, you know, I'm an old white guy and I'm not the core demographic for soccer. And baseball fans are aging out. The average age of a World Series viewer is in the upper 50s and getting older every year. Uh, So I think there is a big demographic in Milwaukee that will embrace a soccer team, especially if it's done in a communal way with the fans being included in the process. So I have no doubt that, you know, know, people ask me, when is soccer going to make it in this country? They're usually people my age and they're usually men. And I tell them, don't look, but it already has. Maybe yeah, not to you <laughs> and maybe not to people you went to school with. But if you're under the age of 40, you played the sport, 
if you're under the age of 30, you played the video game <laughs> and you have a favorite team in England or Mexico. And the key now is to get a favorite team in the United States. And it's happened in some markets. Uh, it hasn't always been sustainable. We had it in Chicago and then it went away. Uh, Columbus, the same thing, I think. Um, Dallas. Uh, so there's some markets that had it and it left. Some markets like Atlanta and Seattle and Portland and LA, it's continuing. Um, in Milwaukee, I think uh, the key will be creating those emotional connections, getting the fans convinced that this team is representative of them. Uh, but yeah, I'm very confident that Milwaukee ultimately will support a pro outdoor men's team. Yeah, we're, uh, I guess we're, we're kind of running short on time here, but one thing I uh, was a theme throughout what you were saying with Nisa and then also referencing Milwaukee specifically was it's kind of that there are these untapped, uh, pockets of fans that probably aren't being serviced properly. And, um, there's, there's a good, you know, a good amount of us out there that would love a team to be able to connect with and, uh, would really like the professional soccer environment in this country to be such that 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 can be provided to more people and more people you know can be be engaging in it and it sounds like yeah. that's what Nisa is is here to do so um, I'm excited to see where everything goes with that. I appreciate it. And Chicago House in particular, I think we've built a really good foundation uh, using local players. By the way. Almost every player in our roster was from Chicagoland. We did that intentionally, and we recognized that there really wasn't going to be a competitive disadvantage to doing that because Chicago is a market that has great soccer talent, and it's a way to connect the community by knowing that these players have come up from where they are. And uh, we'll keep doing that and keep building the audience and keep growing. We were third in NISA in attendance in our first year. And we expect that'll be a good foundation for future growth. Peter, we know that if we're going to support local soccer, it's probably going to be a Peter Wilt founded team uh, or a Peter Wilt influenced team. It just, well, just happens Midwest, to be the case. The odds are pretty good. I mean, I do. T yeah. Um, I want to I want to thank you for being on the pod tonight. It, it was great working with you. Um, I'm excited to share this with you know with the community around us and um, keep uh, keep doing what you're doing. And you know next time next time we're shooting one of these things, I'm going to be wearing a Chicago house hat or a sweatshirt or something to that degree. That's awesome. Thank you guys for having All me right. on. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about NISA and Chicago House, the projects that are near and dear to my heart, and I, I feel really passionate about it. We're, we're on the same page. Uh, Peter, have a great night. Gang, we'll talk soon.